Welcome to our Wyzetta Free Conversations podcast. This month, we kick off our first series with Let's Talk About Racism. This two-part conversation will be led by Kevin Meyer, lead pastor at Wyzetta Free Church, and Dr. Rob Vischer, dean of law school at St. Thomas University. So in this series of conversations, let's talk about racism. And I want to introduce my guest. Uh, I have with me today, Dr. Rob Vischer, who is the dean of law school at St. Thomas University. Their campuses are in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Rome. And uh, Rob holds the Mangler Chair of Law at St. Thomas University, has his JD or Juris Doctorate uh, degree from Harvard University. So Rob, um, I'm going to ask you before we get started, quick question. Are you the primary force behind the Tommies football team moving to Division I status? Yes. Uh, thankfully, the law school <laughs> dean is never in the room where it happened when it comes to any conversations about sports. So I can claim neither blame nor credit for that. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see how that season goes. Um, we're here to talk about racism. So let's have this kind of uh, honest and uh, humbly courageous conversation on this incredibly important topic. And my opinion is that the church needs to have this conversation without polarizing into angry, um, shouting matches, factions that are similar to the world around us. So um, I thought I would begin this conversation and do one of those quick word or thought associations. And I'm going to ask you to limit your response to a few sentences, not to kind of make them like the uh, sentences of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament or the German uh, academics. Um, Just your first thoughts when I say these words, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is a movement to try to bring attention to scandalous racial disparities, particularly affecting black men and women in the United States across a range of metrics. Great, okay. That's just kind of a quick start into this whole um, topic of conversation around racism. And I I used that as the um, kind of words to start this because those words quickly polarize uh, at least the white church. Um, In a message soon after the killing of George Floyd, I said that Jesus was constantly um, seeking out or was sought out really by the marginalized um, in his own culture. And if he were here today, he would say Black Lives Matter. And I got emails and texts and even snail mail letters uh, for saying that. And admittedly, I didn't take the time to nuance the difference between the expression that the lives of black people matter from the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm not alone either because um, I was on a Zoom call just this past week with a number of pastors uh, around the nation, one from outside the Philadelphia area in a church that would not be considered highly conservative, but a white church. And I couldn't believe the reactions that they had on this. I'd love your thoughts just on that. Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of baggage that comes with the label and a lot of baggage that we personally bring to the label. And so what I ask folks to do is step back and kind of examine themselves and try to understand why it's provoking that reaction. What is it? Is it um, because if if you say, well, the, the formal organization has some tenets that I disagree with, to which I say, okay, have there been other examples in recent history where Christians might express support for the heart of a particular movement without expressing support or affirming every communication or message that's associated with the movement? And I mean, I, I would use the example of 
President Trump that the vast majority of white evangelicals support. And I think the vast majority of white evangelicals would say we don't affirm every particular message that comes out of the president's mouth at all times. And so I step back and say, well, are we are we erecting a different standard for what is at heart a grassroots movement in Black Lives Matter where we're not going to affirm the core of the message because of understandable disagreement with some of the organizational tenets espoused by leadership uh, of the organization. And that that can open into a broader conversation about what those tenets are. But I would, my first reaction to folks who have such strong visceral responses to it is just to step back and say, what is it that's animating that? Yeah, well, that's a good good way to put it, because, I mean, it animated, if again, if the church is going to be like Jesus, um, he had people around him all the time that when he would associate with those, uh, obviously he wasn't associating with what he would consider to be um, destructive elements of their lifestyle, but he was associating with their hearts. And yet people will go, well, yeah, what about Blue Lives Matter? Or I would rather say All Lives Matter. And uh, I heard it said once that um, if your house is burning down, you don't want to say All Houses Matter. You want to say Your House Matters. Right. And I think there's some reality to that. Right. Right. So let's define racism. And I, I'm going to use uh, the Christian author, Dr. George Yancey, who has his PhD in sociology and teaches at Baylor. He has a book called Racial, um, Beyond Racial Gridlock. Uh, and he basically makes the point that there are two predominant but flawed conceptions of racism, individualism, and he talks about structuralism. So let's talk about the first deficient concept of racism, individualism. In his view, Racism is something that is, or in this view, I would say it's or overt that can be done only by one individual to another. Uh, and this definition relies heavily on the concept of free will and holds that racial strife is the result of an individual choosing to act in a racist manner. So honestly, if you are a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, why is it that that definition appeals to so many churches, especially as... Uh, Dr. Yancey says, um, white churches. Well, I think it, in one sense, it lets us off the hook because I think and I hope that most white evangelical Christians are not personally harboring hostility when they come across someone of a different race than than they are. Um, but I think it also signals that we, how the extent to which we have been shaped by modern American culture, which is steeped in individualism, where we, um, in what I, th I think is a very anti-Christian sense, where we increasingly define ourselves as a will, as a set of desires, that we, uh, we define ourselves in terms of forward progress toward what our will desires in an effort and trying to minimize obstacles to that forward progress to maximize our will and maximize our desires. So when you start using language that connects your uh, status as a moral being with previous generations or what other people have done or with systemic issues that really f flies in the face of how we like to perceive ourselves where I'm responsible for my personal sins, for my omissions, for my commissions, my acts, my beliefs, period. That's not, that's not the narrative you see arising out of scripture where a fundamental Christian belief is, is one of mutual dependency, that we are right. accountable for neighbor. We are accountable 
accountable for our relationship with God and our relationship uh, with neighbor. And we are accountable across generations, right? We, we uh, our individualism, which has some upside clearly, uh, but there's a big downside when it can allow us to feel justified in putting blinders on to the suffering of others that we personally did not cause with an intentional act or omission. Well, I think that's an interesting point um, because I've had some letters and they've talked about that, what I would call more corporate aspect of our sin. Um, and, and, And there's a movement away from that. But if you read scripture correctly, at one point, Daniel, the most holy guy in a very um, unchristian culture in Babylon is writing, we have sinned, we have rebelled. And he wasn't a part of that. He was the kid. And he was taking a sense of corporate responsibility, which, um, so the positive sides are that we are individual. Um, we do have wills. And yet um, there's something that's greater, like even in the Bible, when Achan sins and he's found out, it, it seems that that individual sin has an impact on the rest of the community uh, around him. So the negatives, uh, let's go then to just looking then at the second uh, uh, definition that uh, is given by Yancey, where he talks about structuralism, or we talk about systemic forms of racism. Um, uh, the structuralist view holds that society can perpetuate racism, even when individuals in the society don't intend to be racist. And the structuralist viewpoint rests on this idea that humans are affected by the social structures in which they live. And Yancey makes this comment. He says, blacks are more likely than whites to be structuralists. And I want to add this, um, and that is that uh, coming out of universities and colleges today, uh, there is much more of a, a, a structuralist viewpoint. Um, so let's kind of cross over another, like what I call conversational landmine and say um, this fairly popular view comes out like in a best-selling book, White Fragility. I mentioned that and I got response again in a strong way from the Christian white community. What, what is your thoughts around that? Well, it, it makes us uncomfortable because it seems to re- reduce some of our own individual responsibility for our own moral universe, which we don't like. And what I, how I would say it is, when we look at structures of injustice, it, the, the outgrowth of that shouldn't be shaming and shouldn't be covering ourselves with sackcloth and ashes. It should be just greater awareness of how our own lives have been wrapped up in systems that do in the past and some in the present have uh, dimensions that have contributed greatly to racial disparities. And at some levels, this can be very personal. So if I go back to my, uh, to my grandfather's life who had a great career working at Firestone, he got into that great career with the junior executive tra- training program that was open to whites only. He launched on that career, he did well, he was able to purchase land, purchase house that then resulted in property being inherited by my father and college educations being made possible and home ownership that was not afforded as a possibility to blacks in the community because of both redlining and because of racially restrictive covenants. And so I I can say, you know, I'm not harboring overt racial hostility or prejudice or discrimination toward those uh, black uh, men and women and 
kids who I encounter in my daily life. But that doesn't mean that my life has not been shaped by the scandal of American racism, because you don't have to go back that far to where the laws and the policies were explicitly grounded in race. And so for, for me, as a, as a middle-aged white man who grew up in the Midwest, my schooling gave me the impression that racism emerged in two chapters of American history, during slavery mm-hmm. and during Jim Crow. Slavery was taken care of by the Emancipation Proclamation. Jim Crow was taken care of by Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. What I need to step back and realize is that the racism goes much deeper than that. It is much more intricately intricately linked with economic benefits that persist to this day. So when you, you know, you can look at lots of different statistics, but for example, the the average black household has less than 10% of the household wealth of the average white household. And the reason for that is home ownership rates and home equity, which is still the bulk of household wealth for whites and for explicitly racist policies and practices in the past is still not a reality for most uh, black uh, American households. So that would be an example of structuralism, a structuralist approach where you say, even if I have not intentionally acted in a racist manner sitting here in 2020, I am still part of a system, and whether you want to call it structural racism or systemic racism or the vestiges of racism or the legacy of racism, well, I don't really care about the label, but we have to, as white American Christians, step back and see how we are part of this reality now, and our black brothers and sisters have been suffering for years and still suffer because of these inequities. So let me um, just dig into this a little bit uh, more and because some of the reaction, I, I want to say, um, I want to be fair to some of the concerns, some of the concerns, like when I bring up a book like that, or I talk about some of these, um, what I would call more popular responses is they, they go right away to this. Um, underneath this is a, a worldview that is not a Christian worldview. It's it's what is called a critical theory and a specifically a critical race theory. And, and I love your um, responses on that because I think there are some positives, but I think there are also some things that we as um, Christians, as with our worldview, need to be aware of. What are what are your positives from that? Just quick. That. Well, so the the positives from the from critical uh, race theory would be they take a fallen world very seriously, right? So, so what do you mean by that? I mean, we talk about individual sin. I, I'm a fallen individual, obviously. That's what, right? Yep. So there's the individual sin, but there's also patterns by which power is exercised that can lead to the marginalization and subjugation of people. So, for example, you know, I, I brought up the housing issue before. If you take a very formal position that's saying what matters is what the rules say on their face and what the laws say. You could look back to 1948 when the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling in a case called Shelley versus Kramer that held as unconstitutional racially restrictive housing covenants. So you could come to that and say, hey, problem solved. As of 1948, they struck down those laws, so everything's good now, right? When in reality, those those patterns and practices that were enmeshed with power 
persisted long after 1948 that kept black families from owning homes and from having access to the financial resources they needed to purchase homes that kept household wealth at uh, draconingly low levels right. for generations that, that has persisted today. That would be an example where you say, yeah, we live in a fallen world where structures are, uh, where, where structures and cultures are, are pervasively tainted by sin. And so when we want to root out injustice, we can't just issue a new rule or pass a new law. It takes much harder work and heavy lifting culturally to root that out. I think that's taking the fall seriously. And the other thing that critical race theory does that I think is a positive, it emphasizes how we can delude ourselves into ignoring our complicity in unjust structures, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? that we can be blinded to the injustice of systems in which we participate. And critical race theories emphasize that. And I think that's helpful. And I think that's entirely consistent with a Christian understanding of the world and human nature. Well, I think it's interesting because Jesus, when he is dealing with um, a group of people, the Pharisees and scribes, et cetera, when he would speak with them, he would say, you weigh the people down. Now he's talking here about a salvational thing, but I think he, it goes further than that. It goes into the very um, lives that they're living due to the weight of um, laws that have in some many cases been added to um, those uh, laws that were given in the Torah. So uh, in that sense, he does move into the structural standpoint, but I don't think we read it that way. I mean, we don't read the New Testament that way, possibly because of how we come out of this um, individualistic culture that we have um, that says that. So if you look at the, the strength then of the, uh, the structural realities, what I would call critical race theory, um, be really hard on this. What is, what is the area you'd go, wow, here's where it really gets off base and we need to be careful about well, there's a couple levels you can look at. One is it's not a Christian worldview and it's not mm -hmm. purporting to be a Christian worldview. So I would say in, a, in one sense, it's incomplete, right? Mm -hmm. it, it does have a good sense that we live in a fallen world and then we can be complicit in the fallen nature of, of creation, but it, it doesn't go further than that. And it's not designed to go further than that in terms of the possibility of redemption uh, through Jesus and a restoration of relationships through Jesus as reflected in uh, what should be the life of the local church. And, it, so, and go, so the negative part of it, let me just ask you this question is, then what does it rest itself? I know that it rests in, it's a power versus, you know, the oppressed and, and those who are oppressing. So where is the, yeah. what happens here in, 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 well, well, so there, you, so let me just back up for a minute and say, asking what the uh, the foundations of critical race theory is like, asking about you know what, what defines Protestantism, mm -hmm. right? You're going to get a lot of different answers from a lot of different folks. It can be easier to define Protestantism by what it's not, mm -hmm. as opposed to something that everybody shares. And it'd be a little bit the same with critical. Uh, race theory, but I would say critical race theory in general is is founded on a group understanding of social justice, where our our work towards social justice 
is aimed at alleviating oppression of one group by another group. And so the, the dangers of that are, one, can it, um, can it sort of cloud the importance and relevance of the person and the personal moral virtues apart from any group identity? I'm right. not saying all critical race theorists do that, but that could be a danger. Um, is there a, um, does the focus on oppression lead to an expansion of the nature of oppression that is not rooted in an authentic understanding of the human person, right? So let me give an example. So. I think we would all agree that oppression could consist of economic oppression, uh, economic oppression. It could consist of oppression at the hands of the criminal justice system. It could consist of oppression of being excluded from job opportunities, from educational opportunities, right? Um, in critical theory, um, let's, let's talk about some of the gender uh, theories. Could... Uh, could traditional gender roles in marriage be a form of oppression? Christians would get a little more nervous about going too far down that path. Or right. let's say assumptions about uh, gender differences in children's clothing, right? Something seemingly simple like that. Christians would probably get a little more nervous because when you're defining oppression without centering it in an understanding of the human person that goes beyond simply the the will, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to construct my own view of reality. Uh, Christians, I think, would would put up a big caution sign and say you you things could go sideways very quickly. So that's two things that I would emphasize: is how do we understand what consists of, what constitutes oppression, and what is the role for individual personal moral virtue vis-a-vis -vis group identity in this power struggle between groups. Those are, those are two ways where it can go a little off base from a Christian perspective. We could get into the whole gender aspect, but that's another conversation completely. Right, right. So I'm, I'm going to just kind of say, and those are good illustrations, a couple of the weaknesses as I look at it, it can discount the responsibility of racial minorities if it's always in the power of those who are oppressing. That would be one possibility. Um, the majority is always at fault and minorities don't have responsibility. I'm not saying that's what all of them say, but that can be the direction of this. Um, and, and at any point, you can just tell me, hey, no, you're off. Yeah, so, you know, I think that's theoretically correct. I think it... Uh, my hesitation goes up when we're trying to identify real-world examples of where that's the case. And so one common example where, Christ, where white Christians will bring this up about the critical race theory looking past the responsibility of minority groups would be um, the demise of the traditional family in the black community sure. and the, the, the prevalence of births uh, uh, to unwed mothers in the black community where a majority of births now do occur to unwed mothers and have for, for years. And so sometimes white Christians will bring that up as an example of, well, here, this is at the root of the problem too. And even there, I would point out that out of wedlock birth rates are not that different between the black community, 
the Native American community and among poor working class whites. So even that, I would not chalk up to these theories of group oppression, take the onus of personal responsibility away from the groups who are deemed to be oppressed. It's more a function of a lack of economic hope in some sub-communities in America that have led them to largely abandon a vision of family uh, moving into the future. Because if you look at white Americans who are college educated um, and in professional classes, marriage rates have stayed almost steady and uh, and married birth rates have stayed uh, pretty steady as well. So even there, it's more about economics than about anything else. So while I agree with you in theory that that could happen, right. when you're still a member of a group that on virtually any metric you look at is, uh, is suffering for several reasons, including demonstrated unconscious bias that comes into play in many interactions, to hear that, well, Black Lives Matter is promoting a lack of responsibility on your part, and that's why you're in the position you're in. That's a very tough message for those who are in the majority and still hold the reins of economic power in the society to uh, get much traction with. So let's move to the other weaknesses. It ignores the fact that all people, majority or minority, are sinners. Would be uh, they, they don't root it into that aspect of our depravity. Yeah. I, and I would, I, I would say to be, to be fair, I, I'm not sure they would say they ignore it. I think they would say that's, that's not the aim or the mission of the movement is to, is to, um, is to stake out a comprehensive worldview and a view of, of human nature. But so that's why I think sometimes I would prefer that Christians' response to Black Lives Matter movements would, instead of being no way, would be yes and. Yeah, okay. Yes, this is an important point you're raising, and we would like to flesh out this vision of the world and the human person to to move forward. So for us, let's just say for the white church, um, we need to look at and say, okay, the individualistic, individualistic aspect of this definition has truth, but when we move away from some of the structural aspects of it, we um, become complicit by not taking um, seriously what is happening with regard to injustice in those situations. So I look at Jesus as the prophets in the Old Testament. They both saw individual and structural. They didn't locate the problem necessarily in power. But I do want to say this, if you read the Gospels, there is one thing that keeps coming up again and again, because the disciples, you know, the Jewish faith, they were in the minority position under the power of Rome, constantly were going to power. They kept saying, you know, when we get there, I want this seat, even up to the very last night when Jesus is going to die, and, and Jesus continually uh, moves it back to and says, no, it's not about power. It's how you use that power and how you service that power. So the, the Christian worldview, in my opinion, teaches that sin is committed by individuals, but it, I think it also teaches that our sin and adultery corrupt and misdirect social and cultural institutions. And we should probably expect them to find racism both in individuals and in structures. 
Right. And, and I would just point out, I think most white evangelical Christians are very comfortable talking about structural sin and systemic sin when the topic is abortion. So why are we less comfortable contemplating that there may be structural sin in the form of racism in a country? You've been listening to the Wyzetta Free Conversations podcast. For more information about Wyzetta Free Church, please check out wyzettafree.org or download our app available on the App Store or on Google Play.